0: I just want to add my welcome to anyone who is worshipping with us this morning. Um, It's lovely to have you here with us. We've been looking at um, connecting with God, connecting with the Almighty, and we've been using um, Richard Foster's The Celebration of Discipline as a a starting point for that. I volunteered to do the Discipline of Simplicity. (laughs) Oh, it's been a tough one though. (laughs) a tough one but um, I love the idea of simplicity Um, my children would say though (laughs) Mummy, they're shaking their heads no that you're rather a cluttered person and have a cluttered house Um, but I think you can still be simple within that no we'll see (laughs) we'll see (laughs) Life is often messy but it can get even more messy at times when we complicate it. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says God made man simple but man's complex problems are often of his own demising. There's a principle I learnt a long time ago from a very wise man whose name was Graham Moore whom we still miss here today. I used to love hearing Graham tell stories about life on the farm, where he would relate them to his Christian walk. They were simple, but they were profound and memorable. I remember when we were planning some studies for Wandy Camp, he said to me, have you heard of the kiss principle? No, and I was always eager to learn something new. So of course I wanted to know. And with that cheeky glint in his eye, he said, Keep it simple, stupid. Simplicity in the dictionary means uncomplicated, to be clear, restraint in ornamentation, or today we often say minimalist. If we think about people, the Amish people, we could say, have adopted a simple life. Plain clothes, they make themselves self sufficient, no electricity. I don't know if that's changed though nowadays. They build their own buildings and houses and they have very devout religious rules to uphold their piety. Then there is the modern minimalist style that's very popular today. I'm not sure, despite it looking simple, it is actually about simplicity. It certainly is not cluttered, however. Everything's hidden away. You have big rooms with little furniture in them, usually sleek with straight lines and not much on the walls, except a modern piece of art that maybe any child could have done. Some love this look. Some would say it is boring. Some of us prefer a country-look cluttered kitchen. (laughs) Probably me. (laughs) Where everything's on display, out on show, it hasn't been put away. But hopefully it's homely and inviting. Whoops, I'm clearly showing my bias here, aren't I? (laughs) Then I don't know if you remember that old show, The Good Life, where one couple living on a suburban block quit their jobs and became self-sufficient next door to the most austere, pompous socialites you could meet. That's probably pretty old, the younger ones won't remember that one. I think the two sides can become extreme. Some people vow and declare to live simply going out of their way to do so, judging others who don't live the same way. But then we can live too excessively, justifying what we have and why we have it. Plain, frugal and unpretentious could perhaps be seen to be lazy, mean and uncaring. Adorned, sophisticated and austere could seem to be excessive, proud and wasteful. How do you balance out these two things, particularly in our society, in a materialistic society? Plain living can lead to making religious rules and legalism. Excessiveness can lead to squandering what we've been given to impress and to provide a false sense of security. Richard Foster, in his book The Celebration of Discipline, talks about simplicity as being an outward discipline. The ones we've looked at over the last few weeks... Prayer, fasting, study and solitude Have been more inner disciplines Foster says The Christian discipline of simplicity Is an inward reality That results in an outward lifestyle And Richard Foster particularly focuses On wealth and possessions in his chapter So I'll just talk about that um, Briefly because I think in our culture it is something that we need to weigh up and to to balance out. Often in our culture we lack a divine centre which often leads us to insecurity, which can lead us to an insane attachment to things. The mass media has convinced us that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. We can buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. We purport the modern hero who purposely becomes richer rather than the rich boy who voluntarily becomes poor. And Foster adds, and we still think girls can do neither. Foster, in talking about simplicity, focuses mainly on our attitude toward and our handling wealth and possessions. He believes we need to destroy the prevailing notion that the Bible is ambiguous on economic issues. Biblical teaching against the exploitation of of the poor and the accumulation of wealth are clear and they're straightforward. The Tenth Commandment's against covetousness. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And Proverbs 11.28 says, He who trusts in his riches will fall. Jesus declares war on materialism. The Aramaic term for wealth is mammon and Jesus condemns it as a rival God. Jesus says in Luke 16.13, no servant can serve two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Paul's list has greed alongside adultery and stealing and says those that practice greed will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Our reading from Timothy exhorts us not to trust in money but rather in God and to use money to do good and to be generous as this is what will bring richness and enjoyment to your lives. However, Foster also points out that God does intend for us to have adequate material provision. There can be misery from a lack of provision just as much as when people try to to make a life out of provision. Forced poverty and neglect is denounced as asceticism, a severe discipline which avoids all kinds of pleasure and indulgences. Again, we need a balance. Asceticism and simplicity are mutually incompatible. Simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorients our lives So that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed and shared without destroying us. Without simplicity we will either succumb to mammon, wealth or fall into unchristian, ascetic legalism. Both lead to idolatry, both are spiritually lethal. Simplicity sets us free to receive the provision of God as a gift that is not ours to keep but to be freely shared with others. Our Matthew reading talks about us not needing to be anxious and yet so often anxiety easily comes to the fore in our lives and particularly in our world at the moment, with the pandemic, with floods, with um, the threat of war. Where will this come from? How can we do that? What will I wear? What can we eat? What's the right thing to do? Very simply, Jesus gives us an answer. Seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus says, seek me. Come to me. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Should I get a better job? Should I give all my money away? Should I lead youth group? Should I go to Bible college? Should I join land care to help the environment? Should I take up soccer? To each of these questions at first there should be a resounding no. First be quiet and seek first the kingdom of God. And hopefully he'll lead you to do some of those. But seeking God first is central to the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Is seeking God first your first point of call when making big decisions? When making everyday choices, a person who doesn't seek first the kingdom of God, according to Foster, is someone who doesn't seek it at all. When the kingdom of God is placed first, other things will be given their proper attention. Another wise character who shares simple wisdom, who I love, is from the Peanuts, Snoopy. He says seek God first too. How do we know we are practising simplicity? Our attitudes will be receiving what we have as a gift from God, trusting God to look after what he's given us and having our possessions, the things that he's given us, available to others. Simplicity is also about contentment. And again from Snoopy, contentment eliminates grumbling worry, selfish ambition, greed, restlessness, impatience, anger, control, ungratefulness, addictions, because we've got nothing to prove, nothing to promote, nothing to lose when Christ is our supreme aim. Jesus came into the world with nothing material and left with nothing material. He spent 30 years pursuing nothing material. And yet left an eternal legacy. We come and go the same way. But what we do in between determines what we will leave of eternal value. Choose to want less rather than to have more. And I think possibly one of my favourite verses, certainly my um, Dave's favourite verse was, so what does God require of us? How do we live simply? The Ephesians reading outlines a list of things about how we should live worthy of the call that God's made on our life. Be humble and gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love, preserve unity, speak truthfully, don't sin when angry, deal with anger, don't give the enemy a foothold, don't steal, share with those in need, speak goodness and encouraging words. Do not be bitter, don't brawl or slander and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Be kind, be compassionate and be forgiving. But I think all of that, what's in the Ephesians reading is summed up in our Micah reading. As I said, one of my favourites. He's shown you what is good. God has shown us what we require to live simply and what does the Lord require of you? You know, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is Christianity. It's simple. Don't complicate it. Do not add religious legalistic extras. Micah proclaimed this message before the people. It was his heart's desire that the people would accept this message and conform to what God wanted, and then serve God in a greater manner. What about you? Are you the person God needs? The person who chooses to do what is pleasing in God's eyes? Are you one who loves mercy? So how do you practice it? Are you kind and compassionate? Where are you fighting for justice? And how do you walk humbly with your God? Your answers to these questions might determine how God feels about how you are living. When Micah wrote these verses, Israel's southern kingdom, Judah, had become corrupt. The people there were faithfully bringing sacrifices to the Lord under the false impression that this would satisfy his demands. However, God corrected his people through his prophet Micah. Michael let them know that God demanded justice, not burnt offerings. Mercy, not calves and oil. Humble obedience, not sacrifice. In these verses, the people expressed their desire to be at peace with God on any terms. They asked this question, how shall I come before the Lord? Michael let them know that God was angry with them and so they were frightened of what the consequences might be. They wanted to know what they could do to be reconciled to their God and to make him their friend. The Israelites knew God needed atonement for their sins and sacrifices were the usual practice. We must not appear before the Lord with empty hands. What shall we bring with us? In what way should we come? In whose name must we come? We don't have anything ourselves that could commend us to God. So what is the righteousness that we need? The Jews had all these questions, but they didn't have the answers. So they make proposals which show their ignorance. First, they offered something that was very expensive, thousands of rams. God only required one ram for a sin offering, yet they offered flocks of them, all they had hoping that that would be enough. They were willing to make themselves beggars if that would buy them peace with God. And then they were willing to offer their children because the heathen nations that surrounded Judah sacrificed their children to appease the gods they believed they had offended. It's clear from what they proposed to do that they didn't understand what God wanted from them. And it's true that some of these things were set up by God's law, such as making burnt offerings to God. But these alone would not commend them to him. In verse 8, God tells them plainly what he demands of them and what he insists upon from those that would be accepted by him. There are many people today who don't want to hear this because they believe that they can purchase God's blessings and pardon for wrongdoing, either through man made religious practices, or through good works. God himself has shown us what we must do. We don't need to make proposals like the Jews did because the terms are well known and they're laid down in the word of God. The one we have offended and the one to whom we are accountable has told us what we must do to be reconciled to him. And we first, we read that we must act justly. That is, we must give to everyone what is right and proper. We must do wrong to no one and right to everyone. What is the justice of God? Where are you offering it? It could be summed up as God's fair and impartial treatment of all people. God's prophet Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you and therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For our God is a God of justice and blessed are those who wait for him. And Snoopy again concurs with this. As a God of justice, he's interested in fairness as well as what is right. His actions and decisions are true and right. That is one of God's qualities. We can trust him. And according to those who worship him continually in heaven, it says, And I have heard from the altar saying in Revelation, Even so, the Lord God Almighty is true and righteous. His judgments are always right. The Bible teaches that God is both Lord and Judge. He not only brings justice to individuals but also to nations and he sets things right for the poor, the oppressed and the victims of injustice. But for the wicked and the unjust and those who oppress others, God, the judge of the earth, is a dreaded force. It says that we must love mercy. We must take pleasure in it as our God does. And we must be glad for any opportunity to do good. And we need to do it cheerfully, even to those who break God's law. It's hard for us to understand why God shows so much compassion toward those who've broken his law, because it's not deserved. We see this side of mercy when Jesus healed blind men, when women caught in adultery and lepers. These acts of healing grew out of his feelings of compassion and mercy. And finally, because God is merciful, he expects his kids to be merciful too. The text says that we must walk humbly with our God, if we're to please him. We must conform ourselves to his son and keep up our close attention with him and study the, his word, as Steve talked about last week. But we've got to do it all humbly. We must humble ourselves to walk with God. Every thought must be brought into obedience to him if we are to walk comfortably with him. These is a the thing God requires from us and if we don't do them Anything else will probably not be accepted by him as for the Jews. This is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. We are talking about humility that grows out of the recognition that all we have and all we are comes from our God. The Greek philosophers despised humility because to them it implied failure and a lack of dignity and worthlessness but this is not the meaning of humility that is defined by the, by the Bible and lived out by Jesus. He is the supreme example of humility and he is certainly sufficient and he has unlimited dignity and value. I want to conclude with this. What we are talking about is sacrificial living, not sacrificing burnt offerings. It is saying to God, here is my life. A sacrifice is an offering that is acceptable to God and to live sacrificially means to offer your entire life to God. Maybe again and again, living sacrifices often crawl off the altar. Such a sacrifice is acceptable to God only, only because of what Jesus has done in you. He is the final and complete sacrifice. You can never match what Jesus did for us by his sacrificial death and God doesn't ask us to do so. But your sacrifices are to be complete and sincere. Being a living sacrifice means obeying the greatest commandments, giving God all your love, all your will, all your reason and even your body. And then Jesus said that we are to love others as we love ourselves. However, no expression of love, no matter how expensive, matches the price paid by Christ. He wants us to keep it simple. Love God, love others. Foster concludes, may God give you and me the courage, the wisdom, the strength to always hold the kingdom of God as the number one priority in our lives. And to do so is to live in simplicity. And Snoopy says, practicing gratitude and thankfulness fosters simplicity. Let's pray. God, forgive us for the times when we complicate so much your commandments and the things that you ask us to do. Help us not to add man made rules to stuff, help us not to bring legalism into the picture. But just help us to take on board those words from Micah 6.8. To practice justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. That is what you ask of us, that is what you require us. Give us through your Holy Spirit the means of doing that. Show us how to do that in our current society Give us a balance between our our possessions and living in this materialistic world. <sighs> Help us to put the, uh, those things in the right place, so as we can keep our hearts and our minds, and our service for you simple and honourable. Show us, Lord, where we need to declutter, where we need to remove things, so as we can simply rejoice and be thankful the things that that you've given us and use them for others and to share with others that we come across. Show us how to do this, Lord, in the big decisions and in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. It's simple and this next song, it's all about Jesus, so coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about him.